Okay, why don't we stand and read 1 Peter 1, 22 together. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting off all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Please be seated. At the beginning of summer, um, back in the end of June, beginning of July, uh, Janice introduced the boys to a sitcom from the 90s that she used to watch, and probably many of you, many of you watched as well. It was called Family Matters. Family Matters. And of course, Family Matters is nothing without Steve. Yeah, he's the star of the show, and everyone loves him. And he's been the source of joy for our family um, over the last month as we've been reminiscing about these uh, episodes that we kind of forgot about. But family matters. Now, what's great about that show is that uh, it really does stress how important family truly is. And it's really crazy to watch how things have changed in 30 years because what's taught on those shows and what's proclaimed as truth in those shows is a lot different than the shows are today. But they stick to traditional family values and about sacrificial love, about telling the truth and upholding integrity in all of the decisions. And of course, comedy is the key in that show in terms of enjoyment, but it's, it's really a great little sitcom. And if I encourage you maybe to go back into those years and watch it again. But again, it stresses in that show how important family is. And throughout the New Testament, the same theme holds true for the Lord's spiritual family as well. Now, why would I preach on this at this current time? Well, John and Charlene are coming from Ireland, and we're going to be with them, which means we're going to be spending a lot of time together over the next two weeks, more than usual. Now, our desire during that time is to grow in our faith and to be encouraged and strengthened in how we serve the Lord and one another. Now we're trusting the Lord to do his part, that he will come and be amongst us and be present with us and change us through the power of his Holy Spirit. But we also have a part to play in how the family functions during that time. And so the instruction today comes from Peter and it serves as a pep rally, if you will, for the big game. And this is of course, not just because the shades are coming, but also for just the future as well in Genesis house. But it's a good time to remind ourselves of these truths. Now, let me give you the context of these verses. Peter's audience is one suffering due to their faith in Jesus. Before Jesus, not a lot of suffering in the areas that they're suffering in. After Jesus, a lot of suffering. Now, to help encourage the church, Peter reminds them that despite their trials, 
a future hope of heaven awaits them. In other words, church having have an eternal perspective to endure present hardships. Have an eternal perspective to endure present hardships. Furthermore, Peter says, these trials, although not fun at the time of receiving them, present an opportunity. This is a time for their faith to be tested and through persevering, prove their faithfulness to the Lord as they eagerly wait for his return and the second coming. Now, the temptations for them are the same as it is for us today. The temptation would be that the trials would make them want to give up in their commitments to Christ, to ditch Christianity, to succumb to the world's pressures, to walk in disobedience, to avoid the persecution. Peter makes an incredible statement, though, in verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says, despite the trials, despite the suffering, despite the temptations, there's only one way to live as a Christ follower, to live in holiness. And so he begins to unpack in verse 22 what holiness looks like in a church family. What does it look like? The first thing he tells us is that we're to, to be to committed to a radical love. Be committed to a radical love. Verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, this word fervent is a very powerful word. The Greek word means intense. In the culture of the Greco-Roman culture, apparently the word was used to describe the stretching of a muscle to its furthest capacity. Now, another illustration comes from the world of TV <laughs> and movies. Uh, we watched recently as a family this movie called Secretariat. It's a movie about a racehorse, arguably the greatest racehorse ever to live. Now, this racehorse won the Triple Crown in 1973. And to this day, despite all the advances in technology, training, nutrition, this horse has the fastest time ever ridden at the Belmont Stakes. Fifty years later, the time has ever been beaten. Now, what I love about this, as you can even see in this picture of Secretariat here, in its hindquarters, in its front quarters, you can see the sinew and the muscle of that horse. To run the fastest time in history takes an awful amount of strain and stress on the muscles of that horse. And every fiber is showing. That tongue's hanging out and they're panting for every breath. And when they get to the end of the line, they're absolutely done. If they were trying to run that race all over again five minutes later, I don't even know if they'd complete it. The horse might even die from heart stress. So it's a full-on capacity. 
This is the kind of love that Peter is calling us to, the love that pushes us to the limit, reaches our capacity. Now, you've been part of Genesis House for a while now. You can understand why he would call us to this type of love. To quote the, quote the late apostle Mark McMillan, he, uh, he made this comment to me the first time I really met him. We're pretty close to the first time I met him. He goes, Andrew, you know the best thing about the church besides Jesus? He's like, the people. He goes, you know the worst thing about the church? He's like, the people. We laugh because we know there's truth to that statement, don't we? How many times has the best part of your day been a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Where you're down and out, need encouragement, and that visit, that coffee, that phone call comes where someone loves you fervently. Who reaches out to you and lifts your soul from the depths of despair. Or even just hangs out with you. There's no despair, but it's just fun to be with them. And your day just got better. But other times, we can be the source of each other's angst and hurts. We can actually be the one who caused pain within a fellow brother or sister's life. So again, we see why fervent love is required because it's going to take a stress on us to love, especially in the times of being hurt. So this love, therefore, is not always going to be sentimental. It's not going to be driven by a deep desire to serve. The emotions may not always be quite in it. It's going to require a choice of the will. It's a self-sacrifice, a choice of the will. Now, later in his letter, Peter's going to tell us why this kind of love is so important and what it can accomplish within a church family. So flip with me to chapter 4, chapter 4, and verse 8. Peter says, above all, keep fervent, there's that word again, in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. It covers a multitude of sins. So what does he mean by this? Well, there's two options. One could be the amount of sin. In other words, repeated offenses. So someone's gossiped about you, and then they've gossiped about you again, and then they've gossiped about you again. So love covers a multitude of sins or repeat offenses, or love covers the categories of sins, really the scope in which sin can be done against someone, but really the variety of ways in which you can sin. So gossip, stealing, lying, you know, um, all those types of things. Now, which one is true? I would suggest both. Both have validity. It can be repeat offenses that are against you, or it can be the varieties variety of ways in which sin has been accomplished. But again, love can cover a multitude of sins. And so Hebrews 12.15 makes this declaration. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous fruit of bitterness grows up to trouble you corrupting many. Wayne Grudem, a scholar, made this comment, where love abounds in Christian fellowship, 
Many small offenses, and even large ones, are readily overcome. But when love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. You can see why Peter calls us to fervently love one another. The same strain and stress that faces a racehorse at the Belmont Stakes. Now, another reason why we can love, or we should love, because as, as um, it's laid out in other parts of the scriptures, it serves as a witness about who Christ is to the outside community. So loving inside the community serves as a witness to how Jesus is manifested to others outside the community. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The way we love has an a, a impact on society around us. As they witness the way we treat each other, as they witness the way we overcome offenses with one another, as the way we put up with things that the secular society just can't put up with, things that divide them permanently, we can work through and they can ask us, how did you guys overcome that? And the Lord gets the credit. So what do you do then when you get to a place where you know the truth, but you just don't want to listen? It's like, yeah, Peter, I hear you, but uh, my situation is really painful. The people in Genesis house have really hurt me. So it's good for that church back then, but you don't understand what it's like to be in my situation now. Well, Peter has an answer for us. He begins his answer in verse 23. We're going to take a running start again at verse 22. So, he says, fervently love one another from the heart for... So whenever you see the word for in the Bible, you know what's the substantiation clause. It's going to, for substantiates the preceding text with the, with the next text. And so he says, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable but imperishable. That is the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Lord's word, which was preached to you. So what does Peter say? Why are we to love this way? He says, because you were born again. Because you were born again. What does that mean? Well, let's go back to the first place of mention in the scriptures. Where does the word born again occur in the Bible? In the book of John. Nicodemus, this religious leader, comes to Jesus and has a private conversation with him at night. And let's look at this conversation. Now there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with them. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I love how Jesus doesn't even answer his question. 
or deal with his original statement. He just gets right to the heart matter. Here's a religious leader, the teacher in Israel, Jesus calls him, like the highest level teacher in Israel. And Jesus says to him, you need to be born again. What happens is Nicodemus comes and believes that by following the law, he's right with God. But the scriptures teach that no one can follow the law perfectly. Everyone sins. And so you need a spiritual rebirth. You need God to do something in your life and your heart to come to know him. Left to your own morality, your own moral compass, you don't know God. He has to come and rescue you and save you. And you need a spiritual rebirth because we're spiritually dead. And we have to come to life. And only Jesus Christ, by forgiving us of sins, gives us that rebirth. And so Nicodemus thinks it's about going, he even says, oh, what happens? I have to go back in my mother's stomach and be born again? And Jesus, no, he says, no, you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born of the Spirit and of water. A spiritual awakening has to take place in your life. And it's received by faith in Jesus for what he's done for you, not because of you trying to earn favor with him. And so Peter reminds us, though, of how this rebirth takes place. He says it comes from hearing the word of God. So, again, I've already kind of alluded to it. Not alluded to it, I've actually stated it, but let me give you the gospel again in, in clarity. This is the words that the church in Peter's day would have heard to come to faith and be born again. It would, it would go something like this. You know, church, there's a God in heaven who created the world and you as a person. He created you to be in relationship with him, but there's a problem. You have sin in your life. And because of that sin, the relationship is broken. So you can't be in relationship with God now, in the current state, nor in the future when you die. You'll be separated from him because of the current state of your life. But Jesus Christ loves you, and God loves you. And so he sent Jesus to die on the cross, to pay for the penalty for your sins. So that if you receive the forgiveness he offers you by faith, you can be forgiven. And those red stains will be white like snow. You'll be reborn spiritually. That sin death covered, taken away. And then he wants you to grow in your relationship with him and to have new life and to change the habits that you carried into this new forgiveness and become more like Jesus. When you hear that message, when you think about your life of sin and what you've come from, can you now imagine saying to Peter, I am not going to forgive. I am not going to love the brethren. In other words, Peter's saying this to you and I. How can you and I choose not to self-sacrificially love others when it was through self-sacrificial love you entered God's family in the first place? Say it again. How can you turn around and tell Peter you're not going to fervently love others in the church community when it's through fervent love that you are redeemed and put into God's family? See, Peter knows that we as Christians can fall sh so short in our sightedness of what God did for us on the cross. And so he actually addresses this later in 2 Peter. So let's turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
Peter knows this is a reality that we we can struggle with, so he addresses us. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, for the very reason also, this very reason also, apply all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. He ends in love. Four, substantiation again. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sin. Why would you stop living these qualities out in your character? Because you've forgotten what it was like to be forgiven. You're walking with the Lord so long that you can start to develop this holy righteousness. And you forgot what you were redeemed from. And Peter's saying, look back at the cross and the cross and the power and the, and the penalty Jesus had to pay on your behalf. That should shape your morality in the way you think as a Christian now and in the future. Very powerful words. So, the Holy Spirit is not a condemner. He's a convictor. If you stand condemned right now, that's from the devil. That's not from the Lord. If you're condemned, meaning you feel terrible and there's no way out, that's not from, that's not from Christ. But if you feel convicted, when you know that the Lord is saying to you, there's changes that need to be required, but he says, I love you, and I've got a different way for you to live. And so he's calling you to embrace that. He's just pointing out where we need to change. But his lack, he's not lacking in his love and his care for us. So Peter calls them to radical love and calls us to radical love. That's key for a healthy family. So what else? Well, out of that love, we are called to change our appetites. We're also called to a change of appetite. And we're committed to resisting all sinful behavior. In chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore, putting on all side malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it, by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So we're to change our appetites, and the first thing we we'll have to do is resist all sinful behavior. And we're going to long for the milk instead. So what does he mean by this? Well, he talks about malice. So what's malice? Some of you will have the word wickedness in your Bible, but really malice is having evil intentions towards someone as, so as to inflict harm. So it's premeditated. It's like scheming to hurt someone in the church family. You can do it like uh, privately, like in your own heart, or you can do it outwardly. But can I tell you just a subtle way we can do this? How we scheme maybe and to maybe like reject someone and maybe inflict harm? We've had a fight with someone, we're not happy with someone. And so we come into church and the person's already seated, say at the left hand side of the congregation. And you see them and you think, I'm going to sit as far as I can away from the right hand side. 
I'm upset with that person. So instead of trying to make restoration, I'm actually going to choose a different part of the church to sit in. Very subtle, right? No one would ever know that you're trying to hurt that person. You're scheming. This is malice. Very subtle. Of course, it can come in other extreme ways too. These are just gentle ways it can come in. Subtle ways, I should say. How about deceit? The Greek word is to commit fraud or to entrap someone into believing something that's actually not true. So Peter blatantly is saying, listen, family, we're not to be intentionally dishonest with one another for personal gain. When it comes to personal gain, sort of edifying yourself, protecting yourself, you're not to be intentionally dishonest. And so this is a really important truth within the Christian community as well. Hypocrisy is a term used in the Greco-Roman world for those who were involved in plays, who were actors. They would wear masks to impersonate someone else, even though they weren't that person. And so you were a hypocrite in Greco-Roman culture if you wore a mask as an actor. Peter says, don't be an actor. Don't wear masks. Don't give this outward appearance in the family of being holy when behind closed doors, that's not really the case. Wayne Grudem, again, I quoted him earlier, he said, the masking of inward evil by an outward show of righteousness. And you remember Jesus' warnings to the Pharisees last week in last week's sermon. How about envy? This is resenting someone because they have something that you don't. You see how this affects the church family, right? How easily envy can lead to bitterness and resentment and grudges. You could desire someone else's spiritual giftings. You could um, envy how God is using them in certain situations and not yourself. Of course, it would lead to how you treat different people differently. I would uh, be a liar and deceitful. I'd be, a hip, I'd be a, and a hypocrite if I were to tell you I don't struggle with this myself. You know how many times pastors and churches get compared to one another? You know how many times I'm on the other end with how you're falling short or how you're failing? You know how easy it would be to be envious of what's happening in other places when it's not happening here? Or hearing about successful of other ministries and things like that. It's really easy for someone like in my situation, in my position, to get envious of other people and other things. But Peter says, you got to fervently end your work. You strain like a racehorse. You put every effort into making sure that does not grip your heart. You start to praise God for the things that are happening in other places and the successes of other people. Don't make it a spirit of comparison. Be grateful for what is happening in your community and for where I've positioned you. How about slander? Slander is the defaming of others' characters. Any speech that really seeks to harm one's reputation, gossip, put-downs. And again, all of this too often occurs when the person's not present. We, all, we intrinsically know when to keep those slanderous comments quiet and when to make them public. It's usually when the person's not around. 
but often those things get back to the fellow church brother or sister. And that's where they're coming in. Pretty obvious, right? Why Peter tells us to remove these sins from our midst. It's critical in order to have a healthy community. Finally, we are to change our appetites because we are to move from being slanderous and malice into desiring milk. And the milk is the scriptures. He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it, by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. A couple important observations arise out of this. The first one is notice that we are to long for. We are to long for the pure milk of the word. When you long for something, you have this intense craving. You have this intense desire. It's an insatiable thirst, if you will. That's why Peter uses a perfect illustration, like a baby longing for a mother's milk. Uh, we know how frantic little infants can get when they're hungry. <laughs> it's kind of comical when you're not the parent watching the franticness in the child, but it's absolutely stressful if you're the mother in that situation. But we get a perfect illustration of the frankness of a child. And then once they, they um, receive it, how it calms everything. And Peter's saying, Genesis House, like, strive and seek in this insatiable desire for the word of God. Be like a baby wanting his mother's milk. Which leads to the second observation in this passage. Why? Why would you want it? Well, he says, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You may grow in respect to salvation. Here's what's amazing. Peter is a realist. He doesn't just think the Christian life is being about forgiven. So we often have this comment in our church, that when were you saved? Someone will say, well, when I was nine, or when I was 14, or when I was 33, I was saved, you know, and give you your testimony. Peter's like, that's fantastic. You entered into a relationship with Jesus at that moment, you were born again. Next question, so how have you grown since then? Because we're to grow in respect to salvation. It's more than just being forgiven. There's a maturity that's to come with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And here's what's amazing. In Ephesians chapter 4 and 13, the standard of maturity that we're to seek to be like is Jesus himself. Ephesians 4.13, here's what Paul says, we are to be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what's the standard of maturity according to Ephesians that we're to reach? Jesus himself. You can see why it's going to take a long time to grow in the process of salvation, isn't it? A lot of us, when we come to faith in Christ, bring a lot of baggage. The beautiful thing is we're forgiven of all the baggage. But then we have to work through the baggage. We have to grow in respect to salvation. Now, radio stations often have words that go before them, right? 
So like date WKRP in Cincinnati, <laughs> going back to the 90s again. Or the Eagle, 100.9, right? There's letters. Well, Satan has a radio station. His radio station is called WLBS. The BS will clarify. <laughs> I saw some laughing there. I guess you could substitute those words in two, but anyway. It's wounds, lies, vows, and strongholds. Satan's radio station is wounds, lies, vows, and strongholds. The more of those you come into, when you come into relationship with them, the more of those you have in play, the more you have to grow in, the more you have to work through. And what is Peter saying? The truth of the scriptures is absolutely critical to healing. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. How are you going to break a vow, or how are you going to break a lie without the truth of God's word? You're not going to. If he's the truth, and Satan's a liar, the only way you're going to break a vow, break a stronghold, break a wound, is to know the truth. Just like attending music concerts doesn't make you a great musician, Neither does attending church once a week make you a strong Christian. You need to commit yourselves, have an insatiable passion for the truth of God's word. Now I know there are many of you, because you know, um, over the 10 years that I've met, are kind of a little bit afraid of the Bible. What do I mean by afraid? Well, when you read it, you can't understand it. And so it's an intimidating book. You don't know where to start, and so you don't start. And you have a lot of different reasons for why you're afraid to go to the scriptures. This is one of the wounds that has to be undone. If Satan has a radio station called Wounds, Lies, and Vows of Strongholds, the fact that you won't go to the scriptures is one of them. So the truth of God's word is actually what you need to undo the very things that makes you scared of God's word in the first place. He's a deceiver. He's cunning. He's crafty. So again, don't just come to the Lord and just say, Lord, I'm going to give you my time. I don't understand this book. I'm nervous to be in this book. But I ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit, just give me one thing to take away from my reading this morning. Just one thing. One word that pops out of the page. One sentence. Anything. One question that I would like to ask. And the Lord knows the Bible's difficult. That's why he's put teachers in place in the church to help you. Remember what an elder's job is in the scriptures. He's to exhort scripture, to rebuke, to refute those who contradict, to lead people. And when we don't know, we go to others who we think have more knowledge in particular areas that can help us as well. If the maturity of all of us is to be like Jesus, including myself, then we all have a lot of learning and growing to do. So let's do it together and not be intimidated by the Word of God. Rise up and desire it like a newborn baby. And you can see how this would impact the community greatly, wouldn't you? Or can't you? It's amazing. I got to see it more and more as I read it this week myself. 
How many incidents rise up in churches that could have been prevented if the truth of God's word had been applied to those situations? How much less would sin be present in our churches if the truth had been obeyed? How much less hurts and heartache? What if we, rather, we chose to rather be wrong, as Corinthians tells us, than seeking justice? How many incidents could be avoided in the church family? Peter teaches us there's a direct correlation between our hunger for God's word and the health of a family. So may we honor the Lord from this day forward even more than we already have and be committed to the things that he desires. Let's be committed to radical love. Let's be committed to resisting all behaviors that are sinful in our lives. And let's be committed to the scriptures. I look forward to what he's going to do amongst us in the next two weeks and in the months to come. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this uh, passage of scripture. Peter obviously had a lot of situations going on in his churches that we have in ours. And as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. People haven't changed for thousands of years in terms of how they tick and what, how they think and how you've come to change them. And so, Lord, we just um, ask you to continue to be patient with us and to work with us as we learn to grow and respect our salvation. Thank you for the way the Word has its place in our lives and that we can rely on you and its source for truth. Again, we also pray that your Holy Spirit would speak strong into the areas of our lives when we want to go into the areas that are sinful in chapter 2. That um, as we go to be a hypocrite, or as we go to the end of this, Lord, that your Holy Spirit speaks very strongly and says, hey guys, hey girls, I've got a different way for you to live. Choose my way. Thank you that you're gentle in how you do that. And you don't come down like a hammer. But you also give us a choice, Lord, and we have to bend our wills to yours. And so thank you, Lord, for that freedom we have, and may we use it to honor you and not hurt you. Remembering that you died for us to give us new life. Thank you.